1: Welcome to the Having It All Podcast, the show about what it takes to live an abundant, loving life. My name is Matthew Bivens, and each week I'm helping you get out of your head so that you can truly have it all. Let's do it. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the podcast. I am super excited that you're here with me today and grateful. Grateful that you would join me on this journey of having these... uh, these abundant loving conversations, and so if this is your first time welcome you you're, you're in for a treat today you really are uh, I have a guest with me on the show today His name is Rob Kendell, and that's all I'm gonna say right now because I'm gonna give you a little bit more details on him later on but first, I want to share some magic I want to share a beautiful, awesome example of influencing myself, others, and life to create something amazing. And so for me, my magic right now is that Sarah and I have been hosting her mom here for the past few days. Uh, She arrived this weekend and she's leaving actually tomorrow morning. And it's just been a really beautiful, awesome few days with her. And I am so incredibly blessed to have amazing in-laws that I love tremendously. You know, I I know a lot of folks don't have those types of relationship with their in-laws. Um, so, you know, I don't take it for granted that I do. And having Sarah's mom here, you know, and it's just, it's, it's, it's really fantastic. And yesterday I uh, created the opportunity to cook for both Sarah's mom and my mom who came in to visit as well. And so I got to cook for the moms and, you know, Sarah was there and Maya was playing with her two grandmothers and it's just a beautiful scene, and uh, I'm, I'm super grateful for all of that. And so that is my magic. And I want to hear your magic. I want to hear what you have been doing uh, to create those magical experiences in your life. Because as we share them, you know, we really start to influence one another. And it's a beautiful thing. So share them with me. Hit me up, Bivens at gmail.com or over on Instagram, Matthew underscore Bivens. And share with me your magic. So, speaking of Instagram, I got some listener love that I want to send out there, show my appreciation for you. And uh, this episode, I want to shout out Jessica from Instagram. And Jessica, I appreciate you reaching out to me and giving me a birthday shout out. That was awesome. My birthday was a couple days ago. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of love from people. And and Jessica, you were one of them. So, thank you so much. I appreciate you. And if you want to connect with me on Instagram, You can, because I'm on there. I hang out on Instagram. I don't post a lot, but I uh, I guess I'm a lurker. I don't know. I just like to look at people's profiles and and be inspired and and get exposed to new content and new conversations. So that's what I do. Uh, And I also particularly love engaging. You know, like social media, I'm going to stand on my soapbox for a second. Social media has so many one-way conversations. It's just like so many people wanting attention. And, you know, they stand on their platform of choice and they push their message out there and, and put their things out there and post their pictures. And it's a lot of wanting others to validate them in whatever picture that they're painting. And, you know, I'm not saying it's good nor bad. It's just a type of conversation I'm not interested in, in engaging with. What I want and what I do on Instagram, I want to go back and forth in a dialogue. I want to hear what your thoughts are. I want to, you know, provide my thoughts on different things and I want to get your opinion and feedback. So that's what I love doing. And if you're on Instagram too, you can connect with me and we can have a dialogue. So hit me up, Matthew underscore Bivens on IG, which I think is, is short, short code or shorthand for Instagram. I don't know. I don't, I don't know those lingos, but uh, yeah, I'm there. And uh, I got some cool stuff to plug. Some I, I got some things in the works, and I, and I know you're going to love them. The first I mentioned in the last episode, um, I'm doing a 30-day challenge, and I'm going to be opening it up to the Having It All community. And so in what, – what month are we in? We're in July. So starting in June, um, Sarah and I decided to commit – to doing something for ourselves every day for 30 days. And it's, it was a beautiful experience. Um, There was things that went really well that were awesome, awesome, and things that kind of sucked about it, you know. But there were lessons all along the way. And, you know, we were making deposits into our body. So we felt really great in our skin, and we got stronger, and we saw physical changes. And it was really amazing. And it's, it's, um snowballed into other things and um I want to bring that opportunity and that experience to you all. So starting August 1st, I'm going to be opening up uh I don't have a name for it, so I will call it the Having It All 30-day challenge. Although I think there's 31 days in August, maybe. So it's either 30 or 31 days. But uh, I'm going to be opening it up to you all, and I don't know the specifics yet. I'm going to be creating them in the next couple of days, uh, but there will be a way for you to sign up and participate, and so that we as a community can commit to something that we want to do for ourselves, and then we as a community can hold one another accountable. Because I found when I was going through my 30 days, what really helped to to get me, you know across that finish line, so to speak, and stick to my commitment was knowing that Sarah was doing it as well. So she held me accountable simply by her doing it. It wasn't like she was checking in like, hey, Matthew, have you done your pull-ups today? Have you done your squats today? No, she wasn't doing any of that. But no, know, me knowing that she was going to do hers kept me on top of my game. So that's what I want to bring to you all. That's the first thing that's going to be coming in the next few days. Um, so actually have details on that on Saturday's episode. So tune in to Saturday's episode at the beginning. I'll give you details for signing up for the challenge. And the next thing I want to plug and announce is that I am starting an accountability group. And again, I don't have a name for it. Right now I'm calling it the Abundant Loving Life Accountability Group. And this is going to be an intimate group of folks who are supporting one another in creating awesome beautiful powerful transformations in their lives and it's going to be a beta group meaning that we're going to be figuring some things out together um, I've done these in the past with more of a business mastermind slant to them so now I, I don't I want to drop that business mastermind feel and, and adopt a new flavor for it so this first group is a beta group there will be a cost involved. So, there will be an investment that you'll be making into the group to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, there are going to be limited number of seats and yada, yada, yada. I'm super excited about it because a lot of you all have asked for this. I've had conversations, one-on-one conversations with a number of you all where you've asked about this specifically. And you've reached out to me an email and asked if there are ways that you can get engaged in in smaller communities within the bigger having-it-all community. So, I've listened, and uh, I'm going to be spinning that out as well. So more details on that probably this Saturday, maybe the following episode, but both of those things are coming soon, the 30-Day Challenge and the Abundant Loving Life Accountability Group. Super stoked about both of them. They're really all about continuing these conversations and these transformations that we're talking about on this show and giving you ways to get engaged so that you can be doing things to create a new experience and new results in your life. Because that's what we're about. That's what we're about. So I'm excited about both of those things. Stay tuned. All right. Today's conversation is so cool. Oh, I'm ex- I've am i been excited ever since I, I uh, recorded with Rob. So I'm talking to, to Rob Kendell. And... A few months ago, in an episode that I did with my friend Kyla, we talked about orgasmic meditation. We, we probably called it OM, O-M. and uh, the episode that Kyla and I were on talking about orgasmic meditation was called Exploring Sexual Energy, What Our Relationship with Sex Reveals About Ourselves with Kyla Sokol Ward. So we kind of, you know, I introduced this, this topic to the show um, through that episode. And if you don't know what orgasmic meditation is, that's okay. Because you will soon. Because Rob and I talk about it as well. And I've been practicing it for about three years now. And all the while, I knew that there was one person who was the creator of Ohm. And her name was Nicole Daydon She has a TED Talk, and she I think she's written a book, and she's just very visible in that sexual consciousness conversation but little did i know that nicole had a brilliant co-founder working with her as she as her, you know they developed orgasmic meditation and their company called one taste and one taste was really the brand that is pioneering orgasmic meditation and bringing consciousness to sexuality and her co-founder is rob kendell and so when Rob and I were introduced, I was so excited to talk to him because, you know, I've been I've been practicing this thing for over three years. And, you know, I've been exploring this with, with uh, various people in my life. And it's been so transformative in so many ways. And so here I am, I had the opportunity to talk to the guy who was behind creating it. And Rob is a super, super fascinating guy. He's done so many things. So I definitely recommend you go and check out his website, which is robertkendell.com, K-A-N-D-E-L-L, and just learn about all the things that he's up to. Uh, Since co-founding One Taste, he's gone on to lecture and speak and coach on intimacy and relationships and and sexuality. He's currently the host of a podcast called Tough Love, and that's tough spelled T-U-F-F, and that show is is so cool. If you dig the raw and vulnerable conversations that, that I'm having on having it all, then you definitely need to go check out Tough Love because Rob goes in. I'll just leave it at that. So he's got this speaking and this lecturing and coaching and he's hosting this podcast and he's also uh, coming out with a book. It's coming out soon. It's called Unhidden, a book for men and those who are confused by them. So that gets my ears perked, right? And he's just a really interesting dude. You know, I, I can't say that enough. Um, in our conversation, Rob and I spend a bulk of the time talking about orgasmic meditation, talking about masculinity. He has some really powerful insights on masculinity um, and on relationships in general. Um, but one of the most interesting parts of our conversation that I'm sure you find interesting as well is when Rob started to describe this community that he helped create out in California. And it was a, a uh, free-loving, kind of open-love, sexually conscious, awesome-sounding community, quite frankly. And so I was really intrigued in that. And I know you are, uh, as Rob tells the stories of what went down there. Um, so I'm just excited overall for this conversation. And uh, I believe this is going to be the first of many great conversations I'll be having with Rob.
0: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
1: Here you go. With no further ado, my conversation with Rob Kendall. What's up, Rob? Welcome to the Having It All podcast. How are you being today?
2: Uh, I'm fantastic. So excited to be on the show with you today.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm excited as well because there's a lot of things that I know you and I are going to be able to just dive into and really unpack a whole lot. And Excellent. you've done a number of, of incredibly interesting things in your life. And so I want to kick things off uh, by talking about one taste. Okay. And can you just kind of talk to me a little bit about the founding of One Taste and what One Taste is uh, for those who may not necessarily be familiar?
2: Sure. Um, One Taste's goal was to bring the concept of orgasm, deliberate sexuality, into the world conversation. Um, it was the brainchild of my business partner, Nicole. She was the brains, I was the brawn. And we became friends in, I think, 1999, December of 1999. Uh, did classes together with other um, groups and traveled together and then in um, the summer of 2013 she said okay i think it's ready to start one taste and uh, it took you know about six months to really uh, you know get in motion and we opened in the summer of 2014 and the original idea of one taste was to make it a destination spot for people to come to learn about orgasm You'd come to San Francisco, you'd see Giardelli Square, you'd walk the Golden Gate Bridge, and you'd come to One Taste to learn about orgasm. That was the first concept when we opened in 2004.
1: And was orgasmic meditation part of that vision back then?
2: <clears throat> yes. Orgasmic meditation is the reworking of a long history of a stroking, deliberate, or a sexual practice. Uh, We had other teachers, so more university in the 60s, the welcome consensus in the 80s and the 90s. And what we did is we reworked their technology and took it from a very different perspective. Uh, First off, we turned it into a practice. We turned it into a 15-minute practice, partnered, uh, Nicole was an amazing student of all different modalities. So she brought in yoga and meditation. She brought in Kabbalah. She brought in all these different concepts into it, uh, mixed up the soup, and then reworked the practice, one from a woman's point of view, but also really turned it uh, more, like I said, into a practice.
1: That's amazing. So OM itself is something that you guys created,
2: Organic like the, the practice. Yes, Right. So you know, like everything else, we took what was best of other concepts, and really did change it. You know, because I was a student of what the previous incarnation with both Moore university and the wealth consensus, and it is actually quite different in its intention. And we came up with the name orgasmic meditation. Uh, That was a fun three-day, you know, thousand different ideas. And then I don't exactly who said OM first, but it was probably Nicole and we like, orgasmic meditation, ooh, and so we <laughs> branded it, came up with it, and then the practice really evolved. I mean, I, I believe it's still evolving, but it, it, it evolved from the beginning because it was an idea that we brought to a community, and we kept learning as we went, so it it evolved along with our students.
1: So why orgasm? Why did you all decide that the two of your brilliant brains wanted to come together and create this this business, this entity around orgasm?
2: Nicole had an agreement with her teachers to bring conscious sexuality into the world. And like I said, she really was an amazing student of all different things. And we had the viewpoint that there's so many places to go for your mental health, your spiritual health, your economic health, very few places above ground to go for your sexual health. And this was in the early 2000s, just when magazines were starting to talk about it more. Um, There were some sex positive communities coming out of the shadows into the light. And we knew that this was a thing that for, for people, especially women, to have a connection, a honest, clear connection with their or her orgasm and her sexuality was missing. There's a bookstore in San Francisco called A Clean, Well-Lit Place for Books. And Nicole loved it. And so she said, we wanted to create a clean, well-lit place for someone to investigate, uh, engage with, and uh, empower themselves through their orgasm.
1: That's awesome. And why do you say especially for women?
2: Um, In society, and it's still like this, but changing, I think in the last 15, 20 years, uh, men's relationship to their sexuality is something above board. It was something we could talk about, we could brag about, though I don't know if we always had the healthiest relationship to our sexuality. There was more an overt um, relationship to it. Women's sexuality was sort of underground. I mean, you look at all the terminology for the female genitalia, um, the shame around it, around her body fluids and her cycle and all these things. It's sort of like a red tent. You know, society would send them to the red tent to, to deal with it away from the limelight. Also, um, women historically weren't taught to receive. They were taught to give. They were taught to give to the man. And their sexual pleasure was really about what they could do or how good the guy felt. And this was skewed um, in our viewpoint. We, We really wanted to first open the space for women to have just permission to demand and to enjoy and to revel in her sexuality and train the man to increase his presence, increase his attention, his awareness to handle it. And then everyone would win, which was my experience.
1: That's awesome. So, like, it was your personal experience through, you know, through uh, the orgasmic meditation that, you know, when the woman is receiving and, you know, it allows you to tap in and open up your awareness. Is that what you're saying?
2: Totally. I mean, I'm such a changed man, <clears throat> excuse me, from my 20 years of practice when it came down to it. You know, I described myself as a man who entered into this in 1998, um, numb and dumb, a really good guy, a smart guy a sweet guy, but really, really um, unaware, uneducated about how to relate to women, especially around sexuality and seduction. And through the practice of orgasmic meditation, through all the conversations and the concepts that arose around, around orgasmic meditation, I just got smarter. <laughs> and women started telling more truth, and I was uh, a, a good student, and I, my ego got squashed a thousand times, but then I kept learning. And then through the practice, I really am no longer numb and dumb.
1: Wow. Do you still practice today?
2: I practice with my wife sometimes. Uh, It's not as much as I used to. Uh, In the day, I was practicing about five times a day. Five times (laughs) Um, a day. Wow. Five times a day. I was about 11,000 ohms over my uh, ohming career. Holy shit. Yeah. Quite frankly, I was a little burnt out by the end.
1: (laughs) How do you do five a day? Because right now in in my life, I will... Practice OM about once or twice a week. So, how did you fit five a day in there?
2: I lived in an intentional community with the One Taste crew for 10 years. And we lived in cities together. We'd get apartments together. Uh, I built a a 40-room, single-room occupancy in San Francisco where about 50 people lived. I built a warehouse uh, in our heyday of um, research and development where about, again, another 50 people lived in a warehouse. And we had morning practice, which was uh, 7 a.m., two ohms in the morning, then evening practice, which was two. And then I used to have one or two outside those practices. It was part of our culture. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. So
1: I want to get back to that because I think there's a lot of things I want to jump into. Um, But I realize we haven't really talked about what OM is, and I can describe it in the intro, but I'd I'd rather hear you describe what is the practice of orgasmic meditation.
2: Physically, it's two people um, coming together to focus on the sensation that exists between them. Um, So what that is is if you... You know, there is a male practice, but that really comes later, so let me focus on what it means to stroke a woman. Yeah. So a woman lays down, she butterflies her legs open, she's on uh, cushions, uh, she's comfortable, she's relaxed, she's naked from the waist down. Her stroker, which could be a man or a woman or any gender, I like to always say there's many, many genders, but I'll just say man to make this clear in the description. He takes his finger and puts a lubricant on the finger, He sits 90 degrees from her hip, so his left leg is above her stomach. Her right leg is uh, below her legs. Her legs are open, so they're both relaxed. The man is comfortable with cushions. Uh, He's sitting upright. He's comfortable. It's really important for him to be uh, without tension in his body. puts lubricant on his index finger, asks for permission to touch her, then puts his finger down and it applies the lube and touches her clitoris in the upper left-hand quadrant, and strokes up, down, up, down, with varying degrees of pressure, though very light, for 15 minutes. And it's a practice of sensation, feeling where my finger, where the person's finger feels the most, in the upper left or on the clit, um, you know, slowing down. You can even stop to hold the sensation. There's all different kinds of strokes during this practice, there's a lot of communication between the two people. The woman could ask, you know, would you give me a lighter stroke? Uh, Can you move a little to the left? The man may ask, would you like a lighter stroke? Would you like me to move a little to the left? And so it's a lot of communication. Uh, There's no goal. There's not like we're trying to achieve what we call climax. There's not uh, an OZ's or a commerce-based. I stroke her, she strokes me. It's really two people focusing on the most sensation that can get created between the two people. 15 minutes completes. Uh, he takes a towel and, and, and cleans off the lube. They share a frame, a moment of connection or an experience they had together. She puts her pants on, and that's it. You're done.
1: You know, hearing you describe it, um, I've been practicing OM myself with various partners for about three years, and hearing you describe it kind of put me in a, sen- a state of awe of of really the intimacy um, that you can experience through OM, and intimacy with your partner, but also with yourself. Will you talk to me a little bit about some of the personal transformations that you have seen within yourself by by engaging in this practice and some of the things that you've seen happen with other people.
2: Sure, Uh, I'll speak about myself. Uh, Mostly, I think I walked in, no, excuse me, I know, I walked in with so many ideas about what sexuality and intimacy was. I was always, like I was a New York Jew, born in the 70s and 80s, the Alan Alda, the John Cusack age, And I was just like trying to be nice. I was always trying to like figure out how not to hurt her and how not to be a jerk. And and I was like always trying to please her. And in that, all the attention, even though it looked like I was doing it for her, was really on myself Mm -hmm. and myself looking good and doing it right. And women felt that. And I didn't have, have a lot of success with women. Uh, You know, I I had some, but not a lot of success because, you know, there was really this underlying trying to make it feel better for women, which women don't want. They they want your attention. They want you to feel, but they want you to not uh, like they don't want to be they don't want to carry you. They want you to show up in full capacity and full awareness. So that was one. The second was that I was a chauvinist. You know, I was a misogynistic chauvinist. I was a child. Of the '70s and '80s, and I had all these viewpoints that women were weak and women were lazy, and I wasn't a bad guy. I was just misinformed by my education, and Ohm really showed me the power and the the just the epic power of women. And the third I'll I'll mention was I learned that I could feel so much. I could feel so much if I took my attention. Off myself and doing it right, and just put my attention outward. You know, we we live in this world where we're focused on phones and focused on ourselves, and we're just missing out. You know, we part of the brain is the limbic system where we sense and and notice each other. We have capacity just to be in someone's presence and feel all their joy or their sadness, who they are. Oming taught me to feel, so I was able to be like stroke faster, stroke faster, stroke faster. Okay, she's about to go numb. I'm just going to slow down. Oh, it feels good. Okay. And then I'm going to, you know, stroke a little faster to go up on a peak. And then I'm going to slow and lift my finger up. And then all, all of a sudden, both of us are in total electric bliss. But I had to learn how not to think with my brain, but sense with my body.
1: How did you, like, everything you just said is, is like each one of those are amazing breakthroughs. You know, mm-hmm. th- that any one of those those things can, can send your life down a totally different path in terms of uh, your awareness and how you now operate in in the world with your new awareness. Mm-hmm. What do you attribute your openness to? Because, you know, there's a lot of people out there who want to have the experiences and, and would like to make those connections that you just described. Yet there's some blockage going on within them that, that prevents them from saying, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to surrender to this thing and I'm going to try this thing or I'm going to, you know, attempt to do something a little bit different so that they can create the breakthrough. What do you attribute to that in yourself, given where you came from and growing up in the 70s and 80s and all the different thoughts and beliefs that, you know, were handed to you that you wore on to now where you are today? Talk to me a little bit about some of those decisions you made for yourself to then shift your perspective and, and, and you know, go down a, a different path in your life.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Well, the first thing is that I had a life-changing moment where I made a total fool of myself. And this is right before the start of my practice. And it, you know, I can tell you the story if you're interested, but yeah, the main yeah. point, okay. So I was in my first workshop uh, with a guy named Erwan Devon, who still teaches in San Francisco, great guy, Erwan Devon teachings. And I was 29. I was with my first wife, Carol. And I was, my first workshop about anything, you know, and I was a successful uh, yuppie. I worked in IT in a downtown firm and I had that arrogance and that chauvinism and I had no clue about it. So I'm sitting in this workshop and we're doing introductions first, you know, 15 minutes. And I was like second or third to do my introductions. And then it comes to me and I do my introduction and I'm speaking and I'm feeling like I'm killing it. You know, I'm just like, I'm funny and I'm interesting. And then I finish, and I thought everyone would start clapping and the teacher would say, why don't you come sit up on the couch with me? <laughs> and instead he said, hey, do you know your wife's crying? And she was sitting right next to me, you know, a foot, foot and a half away crying because I was so chauvinistic and I was so unaware. And I had no clue that this person who I called my best friend, that my words were so negatively impacting her. And then the teacher, Erwan, did the worst thing possible. He said, okay, who's next? (laughs) And I was like, ah. And then like another hour and a half of introductions and I can't talk to Carol and I can't explain myself and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just dying on the inside. But in that moment, I saw I had two choices. Option number one was for me to get up, throw over my shoulder, go back to the cave. Option number two was to be like, all right, I need to understand this part of myself. I want to dedicate myself to truly understand why I'm doing this and why these thoughts in my head and how I'm so unaware of it. And so that day, March 20th, 1999, you know, I can remember the moment. It's one of those moments in your life where you just make a commitment. I made a commitment to fully throw myself in to understand all the things that I didn't understand. And that launched You know, it's been 20 years, and I'm still learning. I'm in my second marriage now to an amazing woman. I'm still learning. I'm still making mistakes. I'm still miscuing in communications and intentions, and I'm lucky to have a partner to reflect back to me. But uh, in that time, I just threw myself into, and I got great teachers, and I invested a lot of time and a lot of money, and I got my ass kicked for years. I mean, really, a good seven years until I hit a point of just starting to realize these parts of myself. Um, and, but in that my whole life changed and I, I learned how to feel and learn how to see, and I learned to like myself. That's the most important piece. I was so unaware how little I liked myself, um, and this practice and, and learning about myself turned that. So for people interested, um, you can go at whatever pace feels right to you, but I do think you do need a couple of things. One, you need a commitment. Second is you need to create a practice. Third, you need accountability. And fourth, it's a thousand times easier to have a coach, a teacher, a gender group, a 12 step program, something inside of, you know, something outside of yourself to, to reflect the shadows you can't see. Because without that, it's almost impossible for you to grow.
1: That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, that moment in your life, I can imagine, you know, I, I can put myself back to similar moment where like you feel like you are faced with that. That decision, I can continue the way I'm am I'm, I'm going, mm-hmm. continue to create those same results, or I can go down this scary ass path of of going inward and and looking at how I'm um, I'm relating to things and, and all of that. Do you feel like it needs to be a a moment like that, or you know, are for the for the person listening right now who maybe that moment has been. Far in their past, or maybe they haven't necessarily had that moment where everything becomes confronting to them. Yet they still understand that that the way that they're perceiving things and their actions isn't creating the results that they want. Do you think that it needs to have that breakdown moment in order for them to move forward?
2: No, I mean, someone listening to this podcast today could be like, "Okay, finally, it's the straw. It's the, the gentle straw. It doesn't have to be intense, though." I will say for most of us who are intensity junkies who live our lives wanting the greatest results with the least amount of effort we put in the the Western way, um, it does often take hitting what's called in 12-step rock bottom, um, you know, hitting a, a serious speed bump for us to wake ourselves up, you know, like the, the Matrix, you know, when, you know, Neo had to be woken up and to change his reality. That was the idea. And so in all... If you look at, you know, something like Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, there's always a moment where the protagonist gets the message, the call to adventure, call for adventure, excuse me, that it's specific, and then at that point the hero can say yes or no. So it can be gentle, but more likely it tends to be a little louder or a lot louder. Got it. Yeah, I get that.
1: So let's jump back to uh, that community you were describing because that mm-hmm. fascinates the hell out of me. So talk to me. You said you lived in you created you and, and others co created this this community and you were there living with, with them around for about ten years and this these were the other folks who were a part of One Taste and were there other were there people outside of One Taste who were in that community?
2: Yeah, it it's a long story. Um I'll give you the highlights. <laughs> yeah. Um so our teachers were with a welcome consensus and more. Uh, among other teachers. I don't want to say they were only teachers. They were were pretty impactful teachers. And they lived in communal houses. They believed in the power of communal living, not only to have a practice, but also to have reflection, like I mentioned. So that was our history. And then we met a guy named Ray Vetterlein. And Ray Vetterlein was, um, God, how do you explain Ray? He was like a mystical 60s acid guy, who was the successful like labor negotiator in the 50s and 60s and made millions and then found his spiritual awakening. And he built um, communal houses in a town called Brisbane, which was south of San Francisco. He was hooked up with Moore University. And he definitely followed his own path. So we came from Welcome Consensus, and then we found Ray, and then we connected with Ray, and we actually moved into his houses and really joined his community. And Ray was looking for a new wave of players. And Nicole, you know, was definitely the best player he could find. And so from the base of Ray and his community, we built up this, you know, people coming and and we had a center. We actually had a physical location in San Francisco, the 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 Girardelli and then the One Taste center. And so people just started to come to classes and we had events, you know, three or four times a week. Um and our communal houses just started to get full, and we had three communal houses. Um, I think it was a good thirty people, thirty-five people, in in a time. And then we lost a lease on the main house. <laughs> the landlord didn't like the sex noises coming from our <laughs> from our house. It was bugging the neighbors. So he's like, "I don't know what's going on there. It feels like there's a bunch of people. You got to go." We're like, "Okay." So we looked for a replacement house, and we couldn't find it. Then probably like 10 days before we were supposed to move our house, Uh, we had our center on 7th and Folsom. And then there was a warehouse, was, you know, three doors down. And that warehouse was a total disgusting pit. It was like, it was an old sewing factory. It was grimy and dirty, but it had so much potential. And so what we did is we revamped that that, you know, broken down warehouse into a communal living experiment. You know, 40 or 50 people for weeks came in and, you know, redid the floors and cleaned and dusted. And we put in showers and we put in bathrooms. It was epic of this communal gathering. And then all of a sudden people wanted to live with us. And so what we had was we had mattress, curtain, mattress, curtain, mattress. And you had like two feet of hanging space. Like it was total Spartan living. And very quickly we filled up. To 50 people living in this space and it was open sexuality it was a jealousy haven you lay in bed and hear your partner making out with somebody else and hear their distinct sounds from across the room people walked around naked uh, all forms of sexual exploration it was the best of times it was the worst of times it was an intense experience but what it did was create this incredible bond uh, inside of all of us and people loved it. It was a pretty amazing way to live That's incredible.
1: That is incredible. What do you think was the maybe you didn't have something as concrete as a mission of that space and that place but what do you what would you say was you know that big reason that 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 you were there that attracted people to it? What was the essence?
2: I think people in society. Are epically lonely, <laughs> and I think mm. uh, you know where we come from in our history is more communities and more communal aspects. If you look at the history of how people used to live, you know, the turn of the century of the of the twentieth century, people lived very close proximity to their relatives. So you'd have houses with grandparents and and you know kids and running around and neighborhoods, and there was a, a definitely cohesion. Then what happened was, uh, after World War II, is the advent of the suburbs. Levittown, uh, Long Island, was the place where they just came up with this new concept of building repetitive track homes. And what's happened since then, supposedly with the advent of technology, where you can have a whole world sitting sitting on the – like sitting together like in the whole world is in our phone uh, what happens is that we um, we lose connection so i think one taste was really an epic experience of of offering people to come together and be community and people would come either for a night at the center to be around their friends or they would want to live in intense situations so it was a mix between the two
1: No, i get that oh that's amazing when um so with with the ohm practice and and for myself um you know I, I really got a lot out of it, things like connection and transparency and vulnerability and these are things that, for me as a man were never easy for me you know and and like I had to do a lot of of just self work to be able to to just crack open the facade that I had. So I know masculinity and and topics around that are something that you've got some really powerful insights on. How can men, in your opinion, work to remove that facade so that they can become more
2: vulnerable? Okay. I mean, you're you're speaking my language. That's the book. (laughs) My book is called uh, Unhidden, a book for men and those confused by them. And it's really about, you know, these masks that we wear to protect ourselves from the elements. Um, I think the the concrete steps men can make to break through these facades is to find a grouped trust of intimate friends that could be lovers or that could just be friends that give you permission and reward you for your truth coming out which is a rarity in our society we we really don't reward people for telling the truth unless it's an acceptable truth so the fastest way to do that is to find somehow to create space for all those parts of ourselves that we have shame about that we don't like and we don't trust to uh, come out and be rewarded. And that could, like I said, that could be a coach, that could be a gender group, that could be a community. You can find it on Facebook. There are intimate places, though I think it's less powerful than being in person. But find other people who say to you, wow, that part of you is so interesting. Tell me more. I mean, our our sexual fetishes and our sexual desires are tend to be some of the most interesting parts of ourselves but we shun it and we hide it. Yeah. And and if you if you want to have the most optimal relationship with your partner what you should do and what we don't do is say I want to know everything about you. I want to know every little nuance and tick. And you know what we do now is we send really strong messages of don't upset me or don't hurt my ego. And the the power is really to be in terms of, I want to know all of you.
0: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>
1: And I imagine that when somebody gets to a point where they're they're just open to knowing all of themselves or all of their part, their their partner, then they can start to explore to find those communities, find those people that will create the space of trust and will reward them for being honest. But like, what have you seen in your work where somebody's at a zero in terms mm-hmm. of willingness to open up? And we're mm-hmm. just trying to get them to a one to where they can even entertain some of the ideas that you just said. What what have you seen at what like what do you tell that person? What do you show that person who's at that zero and they're just not none of the above that you've just stated sounds interesting them to them at all? Because internally it probably sounds confronting as hell and it's the scariest shit they've ever thought of. What do you do with that person in that space?
2: You you torture them. <laughs> <laughs> in what way? Will? If you want to stay in that – so one of my credos as a coach and a teacher is I won't work harder than my students. Mm. It's it's not kind for a coach or a teacher to work harder than your students because at that point you're carrying them. At moments you do, but really over the trend of it. And so if I'm in a person at a zero who doesn't want to walk to a one, you just sit in the silence and say, you know, what's the cost of that? What's the benefit of that? What are you getting out of living so concealed? And you sit with them and let them be the one to say, okay, I'm ready to take the next step. Because if I push someone past their comfort zone, that's not appropriate for a coach or a teacher. I can make it attractive. I could tell story after story about the relationships and intimacy and the great sex and the sexual experiences. I can torture them by revealing my experience, but they've got to be the one to take the step. When they say, I'm ready to take the first step, then we find a really tender way to do that. And I often send people to meetup. Uh, meetup Meetup.com, for those who don't know, is a great, great website where groups of people of all different flavors and kinds say, okay, we're going to meet once a month or once a week. And I say, just go to a meetup. You don't have to talk. You don't have to do anything. Just be around other people. Get off your ass, get off your phone, turn off Netflix, go down to that coffee bar, and just sit in a group of people and listen. Um, For those of you who don't have um, biases against 12-step groups, even if you don't have an addiction, though I think most of us have addictive qualities, go to a 12-step group, sit in the corner, and just listen to their stories of, of humanity and passion, and you can just feel inspired by their growth and their movements. Um, there's so many options today and I do think an in-person experience is important because then you can feel them and see them not you know find something online but really just get off your ass go sit in a room and just feel the humanity in that you'll probably feel more permission for your humanity yeah
1: I I love I love that advice of, of getting around other people having that human connection and you know even if it's just being in the room where people are sharing and being vulnerable doesn't necessarily mean you need to jump in and participate, but uh, I know from my own experience, when I have, then so many things have been unlocked for me. Mm-hmm. So totally. you mentioned when we were talking about OM, uh female shame around sex and, and mm-hmm. sexual shame. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about understanding men's sexual shame because um, I've talked a lot about that on this podcast over the years. I've really, I've recognized like, holy shit, there's so much, so many things come up for me. You know, for example, for me, like right after the moment of orgasm, I recognized I had so many judgmental and shame filled thoughts that would mm-hmm. flood through my mind. It was, it was like a, it was ridiculous. It was like a tidal wave of things that I, I seemingly couldn't control. And, and then I spent some time trying to understand that. So, in your book, I imagine that it's talked about in your book, but also in, in the coaching that you do. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you've done to understand and explore your own sexual shame and what has come up for you in that process.
2: I think that's another very long story. Um, and it <laughs> continues. Yeah. You know, I've had done serious, intense work for 20 years, and I still find pockets of shame. And it grows and evolves. So the first thing I would say to you and to other men is you're not alone. You're not alone with this affliction and this, this weight of shame. It's part of our society. It's part of our culture. And, you know, we live in a society of disapproval where everything you do is wrong. You're not smart enough. You're not tall enough. You work too much. You work too little. Your hair is too long. You smell bad. You know, we live in a commerce based society of disapproval. And so you have thousands and thousands of messages on a daily basis that say you're doing it wrong. It takes agency and self-empowerment to say, no, I'm doing it right. I'm doing it right. I'm doing it right. And again, it's a practice and it's an investigation. So, you know, you, you ejaculate in bed and then all of a sudden shame comes up and then you can use that as kind of like pulling the thread to figure out what is that. More likely than not, it's some childhood viewpoint or you know, something very young inside of you that your parents or something happened. It could probably be a specific event. But you can use a therapist. You could use something like EMDR. You can use plant medicine. You can use all these different modalities, talking therapy, to figure out what's the seed of the shame. And once you recognize the seed of the shame, shine light on it, it moves out of the shadows into you know, your consciousness. And that's where evolution occurs. So yeah it's it's part of the game it never goes away, but your relationship to it can enhance very quickly
1: mm, yeah yeah absolutely and you mentioned e m d r what's that i haven't heard of that
2: e m d r is a kind of uh, somatic uh somatic therapy my somatic therapist uses it uh there's different versions of it you can look it up there's light therapy Uh, the one i use is sound therapy where you have these headphones on and it goes left right and then have little buzzers little vibrations in your hands and what it does is uh it enhances different parts of your brain. I believe it's the theta waves. So you actually go into kind of a trance. You go out of your cortex. You do a deep dive into your soul. And then a trained therapist can go in and say, like, what do you see and what do you feel? And some epic experiences with EMDR.
1: Damn, that's fascinating. That's really something. Rob, I'm I'm uh, so many things to talk about with you, man. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> I love how after after so many questions, you're like, oh, gosh, this is a long ass story.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, because they're so rich, like just the, these topics and you have um, you do a lot of create a lot of content, which I appreciate because I can go out there and I can consume it as somebody who's interested in the different things that, that you talk about. And mm-hmm. I was reading an article that you posted on Medium mm-hmm. and it caught my attention for a number of reasons. But the article is called when your significant other wants a BF, wants a boyfriend. Yes. And in that article you wrote when I tried to be my partner's everything, their best friend, their lover, their friend, it was like trying to be the MVP of both the NFL and the NBA. Yes. And when you said that, I 100,000% connected with it. Can Mm. you explain what you meant in uh, in in that phrase, in that sentence?
2: We have this weird viewpoint that we're supposed to be the best of everything for our partner. We're supposed to be the best lover, the best friend, the best communicator. And our lover is supposed to treat us like that. Like we're supposed to be the be-all, end-all, which adds a lot of pressure to the relationship and adds a lot of false belief systems in there. And in my exploration of uh, non-monogamy in the intensity of my my research, I found out I had so much internal pressure that I was trying to be the everything even if i was the best friend to my partner there's 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 got to be a guy out there with better sexual chemistry it's just the math the science it's just like it's impossible <laughs> that i was you know so but the pressure around it was really intense um was really intense to to be that person yeah so when i got that i was like why don't i just be the best robert i could be to these people and then what would happen was that um Regardless if they wanted to be with me or not with be with me, I was just working to be the best who I could be, not to be the best, the best who I could be. And in that, uh, there's so much pressure because I think there's we feel so much betrayal if someone's attracted to another person or enjoys their conversation or laughs or they can like. It's so strange how much pressure we put on. So once I figured that out, everything just got chill, and I was like, okay, I got it.
1: And this has to come up in in the conversations you have with clients. I mean, totally, yeah. Like people who expect, I mean, if I know for me, it, expecting the, the your partner to fulfill you in every single way, right? Like emotionally, physically, sexually, right. spiritually. Right. Yeah. And how do you, how have you gone about creating a new perspective on that? Because mm-hmm. fa- I found in my own, with myself and the people I've talked to, it's just hard breaking out of that way of thinking. Like, no, this is how it's supposed to be. How have you gone, you know, given people different viewpoints or given people things to chew on to help them create a different lens to look at relationships
2: through? Well, I changed their, their focus. I, most people look to relationships to fulfill them they're looking externally. You know, we're, we're at a society with an addiction to external validation. And Instagram and Facebook likes and all these things have really you know, added to our addiction. So I teach people, mostly men, the power of uh, self-validation, self-love. And it's like a superpower. Because when I'm not looking to my wife to make me feel good, and I'm doing it myself, one, it removes the dependency. It takes the weight off of her. And then it, you know, when her mood fluctuates, which may or may not have anything to do with me, when her mood fluctuates, I'm not dependent on her saying, you're awesome because I'm working on my own internal uh, generation of I'm awesome. And it's illegal to say in society, hey, I'm awesome. But that's what's stopping us from really having the self-validation. So I, I teach people to, to love and empower themselves first. Any external validation is wonderful. You know, when my wife says nice things about me, it's wonderful. It's, it's the ice cream on top of the fine apple crumble. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm not dependent on it. So look internally. Look internally to build your own self-love and then look externally. And that'll create the most powerful relationships possible Because I'm not addicted to her providing something for me.
1: I get that, And and I like that. And what comes up for me is, I know, for me, a number of for a long time, like that idea of self love wasn't something I connected with masculinity. So if I'm if I'm practicing self love, that means I'm being soft. It means I'm being you know, it means I'm being emotional, and I had a hard time wrestling with that because it then it butted up against all these thoughts I had about what it meant to be a man.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you find that comes up in the folks that you work with or have you, did you ever find that come up within yourself?
2: Of course. I mean, I was, I was born in the seventies and eighties and any feminine side of mine was to be persecuted. Yeah. And then nice guys came out and women said, I want nice guys. And we're like, okay, we'll, we'll go fully into our feminine. And they didn't <laughs> want that either. And now they're like, we want you to be a man, but we also want to have feelings. And I'm just like, what? And when do I do what? <laughs> and it's just confusing. It's mayhem. And so what I train people to do is to connect to their feminine side, to use it, to find the, what I call the masculine-feminine ratio, the balance between the two, the marriage, and then to learn when to bring out which piece for the optimal effect. Um, so what it comes down to is you know, self-love is a feminine aspect. And you have to first get off against your bias as a man to say, you know, you know, don't be a pussy or don't be th-. like, it's, it's ridiculous. It's the names and the, 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 the ways we beat ourselves up about connecting to our feminine side, but being connected to our feminine side, not living in our feminine side, but being connected to it is a superpower like anything else.
1: Well, what are some more examples of what it means to, to connect with the feminine side? You, you know, you talked about self-love as one, but because I've, I've heard that and, you know, so many guys have heard the feminine side, connect with your feminine side. But what does that actually mean in practice?
2: Um, here's a good example. Um, so my, my wife, Morgan, is a feminine woman. You know, she's masculine when it's dealing with the kids. But really, she likes to live in her feminine. And I tend to live more in my masculine, though I have a good connection to my feminine side. What I've learned in relationship with her is when she comes to me with a problem, My tendency is to be masculine and try to fix it. All right, we'll do this. We'll do that. I'll move this thing here and we'll drive here and it'll be done. Click. And then she disconnects. And so I figured out, I was like, what do you need? She's like, well, I really want you just to validate my feelings. Oh, validate the feelings. Right. So instead I'm like, okay, I can understand how. That would be hard for you. I can get how much pain that would cause. And I listen to her in my feminine connecting to her feminine. So she's like talking to a girlfriend, right? But I'm just validating. I'm not trying to fix it. At some point, she's like, well, what do you think we should do? And then I can slowly shift back into my masculine. Well, we could try this or we could try that. But without that feminine connection, she feels dismissed and her feminine doesn't feel heard. And so having the balance and the skill to shift between the two is what's going to add to the most powerful relationship with a multifaceted, powerful woman.
1: That's an awesome example. I think I think those listening can can definitely get what it looks like to connect with one, connect with the other, and shift and flow in between that feminine and masculine side. That's great. Thank you. So last thing I wanted to touch on is probably something we could talk about for hours. Um, yeah. You mentioned non-monogamy, and so I am so curious your viewpoints on monogamy being a choice versus the the assumption
2: well monogamy in our society is has a higher value and a higher level, but most people are' not monogamous, even if they're not having sexual. Or you know practicing it, there's you know there's different studies out there, but there's about twenty five to thirty five percent of people cheat on their relationships, have sexual, and then the level of emotional non non monogamy that's going on, especially with the advent of texting and and this interactive, so people are very few people I've discovered are truly monogamous, and monogamous means one love or one heart. Um, Non monogamy to me is just the permission to. Admit to yourself that you have desires outside one relationship. It doesn't mean acting on them. It just means being truthful about it because most of us lie. Yeah. We're so afraid of our partner finding out that we're attracted to that blonde that we work with because of her self-esteem, blah, blah, blah. And so – um, Non-monogamy can be anywhere from, you know, having multiple relationships and being part of a poly family. I mean, there's there's thousands of different forms. But at the baseline, it's just admitting that you're a multi-interested, fascinating, evolving human being with desires that are changing over time. Then being honest with your partners about it. I had this desire. I had this thought. I wanted to try this thing. You know, I want to go and check out this part. And then what you do is you reveal that part of yourself. You take off that mask. And then you actually get your partner see you. And so then, like, different parts and reality comes out. So um, most people are afraid of non-monogamy. Most people really are non-monogamous. It's just getting in agreement with truly who you are.
1: I love that definition. Yeah, I like the definition because it's just about, like, owning that. Peace. You don't have to act on it, but you're right. you're you're admitting it, you know, you're 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 shining light on it. You aren't just pushing it into those dark corners because, you know, all sorts of interesting things happen when you take that energy that you're feeling and you just tuck it away somewhere else. That's right. fascinating. Do you right. have um do you have any podcast episodes, blog posts? I'm sure you have all of that that talk about non-monogamy and dive deeper into those those topics, into that Definitely. topic in particular?
2: Yes, yeah, I have a, I have an episode called on monogamy. It's on my early side. We have one on jealousy again on the early side. Um, yeah, so there's plenty of part of my writing. Um, yeah, all that's available on my podcast Tough Love.
1: Awesome, and and so Tough Love is the podcast, and that's um, amazing. I was listening earlier today, particularly I love the episode series you do with. Um, I forget the the title of the series, but it's with your friend Jeff.
2: Oh, six vulnerable conversations between a straight man and a gay man. Oh, my yeah. gosh.
1: those That's incredible. Just, yeah, you, you, you guys just go in, and thats uh, it's a beautiful thing, and, and just listening to those conversations. I was actually reading the transcripts, and uh, and I love that as well. Um, thank you. So there's your Tough Love podcast. And then for folks who want to go learn more about what you're up to, where else can they go?
2: Everything is on my hub, robertcandel.com. You'll find my podcast. You'll find my writing. Um, you'll find the six conversations uh, you can please buy my book which is due November 5th the book on hidden I'm teaching a communication course in Los Angeles. I have a men's mastermind coming in 2019 So yeah, everything can be found at robertcandel.com And please 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 uh, feel free to use the contact form to email me. I love engaging with people uh, also on social media but um, I'm available, I'm not like in some corner. So if you have any questions, even if you want to chat or do a free consultation without even thinking about coaching, please use me. I like to be well used.
1: Awesome. Yes. And, and I'll just, you know, reinforce all of that. Like, everything that I've engaged with with you through your content has been amazing and eye-opening. And, you. you know, uh, I-, I love having these types of conversations and, and I, I feel like for myself, I've, I've gone inward and-, and been okay going in and exploring. And even when I've read and listened to your work, I'm like, damn, like it, it just inspires me to continue to go deeper. So, um, for you listening, please go check out, uh, Rob's stuff and I'm going to have links to everything, um, in the show notes and Rob, you know, it's been a, an absolute pleasure chatting with you and, and. Just going into all these different nooks and crannies, man. And I really do appreciate you.
2: Thank you, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Quick note about the Having It All podcast. I am not a doctor nor a licensed therapist. I'm a guy with a story and a passion for conscious conversation. My thoughts, opinions, and beliefs are my own. So please consult with your doctor or healthcare provider regarding any questions or issues you have related to your personal, physical, or mental health.